Requiem eternam dona eis domine, et lux perpetua, luceat eis. Amen. There is no place on the face of the earth that I had rather be than standing in this pulpit, breaking open the word of God, the sacred word, allowing this music to fling wide the doors to the kingdom. In doing so, and I really emphasize this in the beauty of holiness, this sacred place, this room, as we recall all of those who died in the service to our country, and because grief is so real and so prevalent, all those who have died that are dear to us. Let me say right here and right now, that you all have meant so much to me in the recent past. And let me acknowledge that gift and tell you right now how much I love you. I have to do a bit of multitasking in this sermon. The expectations seem to be flying around. I want to acknowledge you. I want to share with you something of me and the work that I've been about. I want to speak to you a lot about the beauty of holiness that keeps Trinity Cathedral as an arena for spiritual growth, sublime music and worship, and deep connection one with the other on both sides of the veil. And most especially, we remember those who live in that province way beyond the river. My first visit to Trinity Cathedral was on Low Sunday, 1954. Low Sunday is a nickname for the first Sunday after Easter. When attendance is way, way down low, contrary to expectations that are way up high, on Easter Day, we clergy say, oh, look at the crowds, and they'll all come back next week, and they never do. (laughs) But the Episcopal Diocese of Arkansas had a solution. This diocese used to sport youth choirs in almost every single one of our churches, even Calvary Church Osceola, where I spent my early years of a life in Christ. On Low Sunday, now get the initiative of this church, here we were, driving to the big city of Little Rock. Here we got here and we donned our white katas, remember those, and red surplices? And behind the cross of Jesus, we marched in procession down this main aisle, and there must have been 200 of us. We sang a hymn we practiced for months. The hymn was, Rise crowned with light, imperial Salem, rise. Well, I had no clue whatsoever that what that hymn meant. And I still have no clue whatsoever what that hymn means. <laughs> But it was so glorious nonetheless, and I got such a strong taste of our incomparable worship at its very best. And it was done in gathered community. And with the solemnity and sublimity and sonority of a form of music that has kept this body, soul, and spirit in one piece for seven and a half plus decades. I have to say and say without equivocation that when all is said and done, I do not know what or where or who I would be without the gift of church music. 
I grew up in that tiny little Episcopal church over there on the Mississippi River. There where the sermons were like the dry bones mentioned in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And during those sermons, I somehow, for some reason, thought it be my best to memorize the first lines of every hymn in the 1940 hymnal, the old hymnal as some of us still refer to it. Even still, when I drive down the highway and turn onto a road like 289 in Dallas, which is Preston Road, all of a sudden the old hymnal comes to mind and I start singing, Oh God, our help in ages past. Or maybe like last week in New Jersey, I turned down road route 243 and it was, I sing a song of the saints of God, patient, brave, and true. Or Interstate 55 near my erstwhile home in Mississippi County. The hymn is 40 days and 40 nights. I was fasting in the wild. That's where, as a therapist of mine once said, obsessive-compulsive disorder can get you. I often dream of churches, and well, Dell, of course, I've been gainfully employed by this church for over half a century. By the way, my golden anniversary as a priest is coming up on December the 16th, and I invite all of you to come to Charlotte for the occasion. And Michael McNeely said he would arrange for a hundred buses to take you all. (laughs) He's hiding over there, I think. My church dreams often take the shape of Trinity Cathedral, buildings that are very traditional in design, three-tiered rooms like this one, with highly significant lessons about the communion of saints, those who have died, and are headed toward our Lord, taught by the building's architecture. Do you realize that the architecture of a church can teach you so much? Here, the church militant out there, as we call you, as you mill around, as you pray, as you ask God for help, as you converse, as you gossip, whatever it is that you do. Here, the church expectant, waiting for the resurrection, being purified, being blessed, being readied for the kingdom to come. And there, up by the altar of Christ, the church triumphant, where Jesus says, come, follow me, up all the way, up yonder. Three-tiered fellowship, the body of Christ it is, and it's on pilgrimage, it's in movement. In other words, from there to here. Again, being sanctified, smelted, I would say, read these propers tonight made ready, blessed. And remember that blessed comes from that German word which which means bloodied. To be blessed is to be bloodied in many ways. And then we come to the resurrection with him who said, take up your cross and follow me. The way of suffering happens to be the way of life. Now that's not my economy, but that certainly is God's. That sacred journey is being exemplified tonight by the offering of Maurice Durafle's Requiem, the crowning achievement in this man's illustrious career as a church musician. Oh, good God in heaven, what would we do with the likes, without the likes of church musicians, the Maurice Durafle's, the Eric Sutter's, 
the Colin McKnights, and this group of yahoos that sit up here in, in the church expectant. Tonight, as they perform this remarkable work of genius, notice well that there is consolation in the offering of holy word paired with holy sound. But mind you, and read it carefully, there's also the notion of judgment, pain, heavens quaking, and souls trembling as the souls undergo readiness for heaven. It's not instantaneity as we believe these days. It's not quite the mild and meek celebrations of life that we have substituted for burial of the dead. Requiem masses used to be our standard in the church, and they take in end-of-life realities in a far more convincing way than our contemporary funereals that try to soften the wrenching pain of grief and death. You've experienced grief, I suppose. Some of you have experienced death in many ways. It's no easy road to hoe. Let's acknowledge that. Listen closely as we explore with voice and organ these spiritual notions that come straight from our tradition as Catholic Christians. I didn't say Roman Catholic, I said Catholic Christians. In our case, Anglican Catholics. So many years ago, I attended an institute in New York City where Frederick Beekner, the contemporary spiritual essayist of great esteem, was the guest speaker. In one of his perorations, Beekner spoke passionately about a time in his life when he felt he was coming apart at the seams. It was a dark episode of personal brokenness, grief, and despair circling about his own father's death. Now, I'm speaking from memory here. I'm not quoting from a book, so God only knows if I get it right. Forgive me if I don't, but let me tell you the story as I remember it. Fred spoke of walking into an Episcopal church somewhere near Chicago at a garden variety Sunday morning, 8 o'clock Eucharist where not all the lights had yet to be turned on. As I say, Fred was in a state of turbulence, despair, grief. Oh, but the candles, he said as he walked in. There were candles all over the place, at the main altar, at the side altar, and in several votive stands where individual prayers were marked with small flames in blue glasses. Well, it was not as if the Episcopalians couldn't afford electricity. They are Episcopalians. Certainly they could pay the light bill. It was because they treasured mystery, sanctity, transcendence, a spiritual ambiance not to be disturbed by artificial illumination or noisy conversation and so necessary for contemplation of the holy. Fred commented that he could smell not only the burning beeswax that wafted through the room, but the redolent odor of incense that remained from worship the Sunday past. People entered the church quietly, he noted, made reverence to the sacramental presence of Christ, entered their pews, and immediately dropped to their knees for prayer. And the colors, oh, the colors of frontals, pendants, and antipendia. I bet you don't know what an antipendium is, I'll tell you. They took him by surprise, and the flowers lifted his sorely wounded heart to a place, he said, of surcease, consolation, relief. 
When he took communion at the altar and received the holy sacrament, the priest recognized him, placed a consecrated wafer in his hand, and said, Freddie, the body of Christ. And it was a moment of recognition and acknowledgement. Suddenly he felt like he was valued with a capital V. Sublime, solemn worship of the Almighty here through music, word, dimmed light, and sacrament. This is the stuff of which we are made as Christian people on pilgrimage. Speaking of the stuff of which we are made, tonight we sing a hymn from the Anglican Lutheran treasure trove of music, but it's not one too well known in this country. It's probably taken from the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, so it has a biblical reference It's sung especially on occasions like these when we remember those who have died and when we as Anglicans, now get this, actually pray for those who have died. Prayers that those who precede us in death may continue to grow in God's love and service. Not every Christian body is allowed to pray for those who have died, but we do it that they may continue to grow in God's love and service. I think that's downright flabbergasting. That those who have crossed into God only knows where, that province beyond the river, will continue in their growth toward Christ. It's not over at the grave. There is more. And it's undiluted mystery wherein we don't want to turn on all the lights. Now, The first time I heard this hymn was during a solemn celebration of the Eucharist at Church of St. Mary the Virgin in New York City. As the administration of Holy Communion came to an end, we, the congregation, sang this hymn along with the choir. First time I had ever done it. And we did so at a tempo not normally heard in American churches, where we are notorious for galloping through congregational hymns so that we can avoid overtime. And as we used to say in Northeast Arkansas, to get to the Holiday Inn before the Baptists. (laughs) The words of the verses stood out, especially for me that night, not only because of the lofty poetry or the musical notation, but also this portrait of a huge, enormous, stupendous crowd of saints who compass up about with so great a cloud of witnesses, the communion of saints. You'll sing these words in a moment. Linger on these words. Take them home with you. Chew on them and pray them. They speak truth. In our day of thanksgiving, one psalm let us offer for the saints who before us have found their reward. When the shadow of death fell upon them, we sorrowed. But now, now we rejoice that they rest in the Lord. In the morning of life and at noon and at even, he called them away from our worship below but not till his love at the font and the altar had girt them with grace for the way they should go. At St. Mary's that night, I had one of those extraordinary moments, not extraordinary, extraordinary moments during the singing of this hymn known as St. Catherine's Court. It was a spiritual experience, minor, I course, in the scheme of things, but it was a stretching and awakening from where I was to where God would have me be.
coming into that ever so gorgeous a building on the Feast of All Saints, I was stunned by an array at the altar, the likes of which I had never seen, except, of course, here. I was stunned by a crimson and a white altar display, multicolored flowers that landscaped the surroundings of the altar, and an organ prelude composed by none other than Maurice Duraflame. I noticed that there were, and I counted them, 88 candles positioned in the sanctuary. I counted them all. And like the parish rector that I've been for most of my life, I wondered how much they cost and who would pay for them. These days, I can, draw, I can cry at the drop of a hat. Thank God I have unthawed. It is a gift of the Spirit, and it is spelled relief. You know, they used to say that Rolade spelled relief. It's the Spirit of God. As we sang that night, tears of gratitude flowed for me for membership in this particular community of Christ, known as the Anglican branch. And there were tears of appreciation for the symbols, the sights, and sounds, and smells that create beauty of holiness. And for me that night, there were a few tears of what I think might have been embarrassment, or maybe it was shame. Do you know the dynamic of shame? It's a terrible feeling. Contemporary writer Brene Brown tells us that it's that all-too-painful human sensation that there is something about me that disqualifies me from connection with God, connection with you, and connection with my innermost self. The greatest fear we have is to be disconnected. That night I was carrying with me a rather big, bitter sting of thinking that I must be a defect, a loser a cipher in the universe. To put it into context, I had just applied for the directorship of a Center for Christian Spirituality in Manhattan. Oh, it was a perfect position for me, I thought, and for the gifts that I bring to the table. Patrons of the center and the board of directors assured me that I was a shoe-in for the position, and I began to count those skinny chickens before they ever hatch. Part of the ritual for such an academic post was to present a lecture on some subject germane to the institution's mission. The topic given to me was the shape of spirituality in the 21st century. And oh, heavens above, I thought, am I ever qualified for that? I am equipped, or so my hubris had me believe. I made the presentation, and I'm telling you, it was brilliant. But I'm not quite sure it was the lecture the judging jury had in mind. I figured, and I'm very right on this score, that one cannot speak about spirituality in this century, or the next century, or even the next century, without holding up and holding forth the inestimable contribution of 12-step recovery. And what programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and the Al-Anon family groups and 220 others who go under the flag of 12-step, those who have given millions of addicts like me a life over the last century and a half. Perhaps you know, and I'm sure you do, that I am a recovering or a recovered alcoholic. 
With a good number of productive and happy years of sobriety, I wouldn't be standing here tonight if it weren't for the aforementioned gift of recovery that fosters miracles to so many on a daily basis. I was not called for the directorship of the Center for Christian Spirituality, and you and I can guess the reason. I learned that night that recovering individuals of whatever sort are not often lifted to the higher places, especially in ecclesial institutions. Stigmas still exist, and they do limit. What a vulnerability hangover I carried with me that night of the saints at St. Mary the Virgin and in the singing of that hymn. Oh, I had said too much. I told the family secret. Stuart, why don't you learn to posture and pretend and prevaricate? Protect your glittering image and your glamorous powers for God's sake. But I chose that night for reasons, I guess, under the influence of the Spirit to let go and to let God. And by doing so, I suffered a bad case of wounded pride and deflated, punctured ego. But you know, that's exactly the recipe. That's the stuff for conversion. That's what it's about. Ego edging God out to have that punctured to let God in. Connection is the deepest longing of the human soul, and vulnerability is the key to that connection. Well, after making my communion at the altar where the veil is said to be all too thin, I returned to my pews, I got on my knees, I said a prayer of thanksgiving while taking off my glasses. Note that, I took off my glasses. Now, without the aid of connection, of corrected vision. See, I didn't have them on when I saw that. Every single one of those 88 candles had morphed into large globes of luminescence, and they were swirling all over the chancel, the nave, and the sanctuary of the church. It's the kind of vision that salty tears create when a slender thread of the spirit touches the heart. Oh, it was a consolation. It was being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, at least 88 of them, not visible to the naked eye, only to an eye filled with the tears of a broken dream. The saints are as close to us as the breath we breathe. Listen, in places like this where the veil is thin, and you can almost touch the assembly that compasses us about, with so great a cloud of witnesses, here they are. And what do they do? They're cheerleaders. They shout, they dance with words like, persevere, fight the good fight, let go and let God. Maybe even things like, it's not the life that you want to live, it's the life that wants to live in you. With heavenly friends like this all around us at every turn, what could ever, ever get us down? Well, I could go on for hours but I know you probably need to get out of here to go eat dinner before the Baptists. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to be here. No place on earth I had rather be than on in this occasion. I love you all dearly. And look forward, I really look forward to the day when I'll rest with the saints in our columbarium across the way over there. I already have a reservation. So keep the faith in the meantime. Honor the traditions like Tevia, tradition, tradition. Take in the assurance of the saints. 
and treasure this glorious musical heritage of ours which will lift you and me higher than we could ever imagine we could go. And I might add, whatever else you do in the days to come, rise crowned with light, imperial Salem, rise. Amen.